Welcome to the Editor's Desk Podcast. This is Rusty Reno, Editor of First Things, and I have with me Mark Bauerlein to talk about his recent piece in the January issue of First Things, A Less Perfect Union. Welcome, Mark. Uh, glad to join you, sir. Before we get going, of course, I have to make a plug. In this case, it's a plug for uh, our sponsor, First Things Magazine. <laughs> we're at the waning days of the month of December, and we're engaged in our year-end fundraising campaign. And so I really hope that those who enjoy this podcast, as well as Mark's Conversations with Mark Bauerline podcast, can see their way to logging on and making a donation to support our mission here at First Things. Plug done. Okay, Mark. Um, a Less Perfect Union is really a, um, a piece about Abraham Lincoln. And I, I got done reading the piece and I thought, oh, we should have given it the, the, the title, The Curse of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is sort of part of your thesis. It is. And what really uh, brings me back to it is some current events. And when we look at on the left, the woke movement, it really does bring a utopian conception of social affairs to critique the obviously messy lives of society that we have to lead. And that the the woke outlook just wonders, why do we have any discrimination? Why can't everyone just be happy? Why can't we really have heaven on earth? Uh, where, you know, love is love and uh, everyone can pursue his and her and she and she's uh, 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 desires and we can all just live and let live and be happy. And this seems to me to be just a progressivist version of the old utopian dream. On the other hand, on the right, we have too often a too clean, neat, ideal propositional idea of America, the America that says we're really just united by a set of principles. And as Lincoln says in the Gettysburg Address, a proposition, all men are created equal, those five noble words in the Declaration. And it seems to me that both sides really end up do being a curse, a judgment on the practical realities of life in a big, complicated nation that has to be governed. And that going back to Lincoln, during the war, it was a crisis like never before. And the bloodshed was so astronomical. I mean, 23,000 men killed or maimed or missing in two days at Shiloh. How in the world can the North possibly justify this loss, this catastrophe, and that was Lincoln's job. He was the one who brought the sacred idea of union, of holding it all together, raising it up in biblical terms so that it really was a civil religion. And that while this 
outlook may be right in wartime, after the war is over, we need to scale it down a little bit. We need to be, it's like the election of Barack Obama in 08. Remember, Rusty? Only the, too the, well. The dreams. And it only took about four or five months for the left, which saw Obama in, in savior terms, for the left to be disenchanted with Barack Obama because now was time for the just in the nuts and bolts of ordinary governing. And he was bound to be a disappointment. I think if Lincoln, I mean, what would have happened if Lincoln had lived beyond the war? And oh, had we would have seen him with all of his warts. A peacetime president. And and yet, yes, it would bring him down to earth because he'd have to be a peacetime president and... and Compromise all. and bad policies. And yes, I agree. I do think that his assassination, um, well, you have that Walt Whitman, no captain, my captain, that raises him to the level of a Christ-like figure. And, and he was a great master of rhetoric. Wow. I was rereading the second inaugural and it's the greatest piece of public theology ever written in our, our 200 plus year history. He internalized the cadences, the images, the metaphors of King James, like, like no other politician, I think in, in American history, the, the sublimity of the prophets and of the Sermon on the Mount. Lincoln caught that. It was just in his bones. It was it was in the air that he breathed. And I think that, again, this was right for a nation, for a house divided, to use a biblical metaphor that Lincoln used. It was right for all the mothers and fathers who saw their sons coming home with no arms or legs. You needed a supernatural, a mythic, an ideal of the cause, of the ultimate goal of union. And he, he did. He sacralized the union. It's something the South would not have understand. Well, what union are you, are you talking about here? What, what, where, where do you get this idea of a sacred bond between all the states? Southerners wouldn't think that way at all. Although, it, although it, did, it did succeed in the sense that by the time you got to the end of the 19th century, I think it's um, many, I think it was really the war that transformed these United States into the United States. And that orthographically, that was actually a change in the ways people spoke of the country. So, so Lincoln, so part of it was, I think, in your argument here in, in the piece is part of it is the, what do you, maybe you think the metaphysical burden almost of this unprecedented slaughter um, as these two forces hurled themselves against each other for far longer than they thought that they would have to do it. And, and part of it was Lincoln's genius. You know, there was a kind of, he was the man for the moment. He won. But you, but the thrust of the piece, and I think there's something to it, which is that um, social crises make for extreme myths. And it's hard to live 
day in and day out at uh, at thirty thousand feet. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, there's ten. And, and but but Rusty, if you're if you're in a crisis day in and day out, like we had for those three years, three and a half years of the war, uh, in a way you have to get up there into the clouds. It 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 enables you to, to make sense out of it all. Yeah, the suffering and to feel like. There was there was something again noble. I mean, I, I talk in the article about the the South's version, the mythical conception of the wars is the lost cause idea, and of the great nobility of the Southern military leaders, not the political leaders. You know, nobody remembers Alexander Stevens. In fact, he was Stevens was despised. In, and he was the vice the president North. of the Confederacy. He was the vice president of the Confederacy. I think he was governor of Georgia, maybe senator. I think governor of Georgia before that. And then Jefferson Davis. No one looks upon Jefferson Davis as a high noble, you know, Roman figure. Uh, Lee and Jackson, of course. Uh, Longstreet, a little less so. Uh, Jeb Stewart. You know, I, I, I mentioned in the article Jeb Stewart's famous you know, 100, 150 mile ride around the entire McClellan army in, in a couple of nights, which is just one of those gallant and adventuresome uh, exploits that gave the South the idea of we, we are, we are the soldiers that Mark Twain uh, uh, mocked them for thinking of great valor. And I, I mentioned also in, in the article uh, that it was pretty clear the Southern soldier, the average Southern soldier was much better than the average Union soldier, in part because of the advantage the Union had. So many of those Union soldiers were city dwellers. They weren't hunters. A lot of them weren't very experienced with guns when the war started. They weren't used to going through the woods on scouting parties. Southerners were a much more hunter uh, uh, out there, uh, less, more agrarian society. And so th those Southern warriors were, were uh, more skillful in battle. So when we hear that uh, the, the Union Army, you know, was 50% larger than the Southern Army, that didn't always mean what the numbers suggested they meant. But again, you know, the, the, the kill, I mean, 660,000 men killed, that doesn't include all of the disfiguring and also just the missing. You know, people well, just disappeared. I think it was 10% of military age men in the United States died in the Civil War, which is an extraordinary number. I, I looked, when you gave this account of the Southern myth, I mean, part of your argument here, and I think it's correct, is that there had to be myth-making in order to, if you will, almost to sustain your sanity amidst this terrible loss. Um, otherwise, it's just senseless slaughter, and one descends into a kind of nihilistic cynicism. In the Southern myths, I often think of them, the South treated the war as their Iliad, you know, and it was Ajax and Achilles and Agamemnon. It was Longstreet, Lee, Jackson, 
um, as you point out, it's these warrior figures who become mythologized, and they're often very much criticized as mythologization today. But let's leave that aside. The northern myth was Virgil's Aeneid, the founding of, or the refounding. It is actually, Lincoln speaks of, and many people speak of the Civil War as a refounding, our second founding. It says exactly the way that the Aeneid works. It's the Rome is the second founding of Troy with a nation that has a mission to the entire world. It's a kind of myth of, of uh, the beginning of a universal empire. Um, and you suggest that the Southern myth is actually more humane or more livable because it's not a political program in the way that the Northern myth is a political program that becomes a burden for us um, over, over, the, over the decades. You know, you, you speak of more humane. It's interesting, Rusty, when we think of the Southern generals, we think of Stonewall Jackson's extraordinary leadership capacities. He could move large bodies of men very quickly and quietly, daring. Uh, you know, at, at, at Chancellorsville, I mentioned, he, he and Lee, they did something, they, they broke the first rule of military strategy in when you have big armies and wars, never divide your forces. <laughs> well, that's, that's what they did. And it worked because Jackson was able to get those men in that, what, 27-mile march around the back of, of the Union forces there at Chancellorsville. Uh, and Jackson's campaign in the Shenandoah Valley in the summer of, what, 1862, that's still studied as an amazing campaign, especially for its mobility. When we think of the Northern generals, Grant and Sherman, total war. <laughs> We're just, it's, it's attrition. We got beat badly today. We're going to lick them tomorrow. That's, I remember that's uh, what, reading, I think it was Sherman's memoir, where he woke up after the second day of Shiloh and told um, Grant that, I think if you fight the second day, you win. <laughs> you, you, well, you fight to a draw on the first day and if you wake up and fight a second day the next guy you just wear him down well people were shocked at the casualties of Shiloh Shiloh was the first real big bloody day bloody two or three days you know we had Antietam after that which was even a little worse and then Gettysburg but uh, when the casualty numbers, numbers at Shiloh came out people in the north were shocked they were actually angry at Grant, even though it was and ended up sort of a stalemate after the first couple of days of disaster for the Union, people people were calling for Grant's removal. You know, the guy's a butcher, and Lincoln said, "I I, I can't spare this man. He fights because he was dealing with McClellan over there in in Virginia, who wouldn't fight." Uh, and that that was that was that was Lincoln's. Lincoln was uh, understood what it's going to take. And that probably helped him formulate this otherworldly conception. It helped him sacralize the union because he knew what this was going to cost. And, you know, Europeans, I mean, Rusty, when we look at the European wars, or like the Napoleonic Wars, we had Waterloo, which had massive casualties, very, very bloody 
battle. And it was over. Here we had Shiloh. And then a few months later, we had another one. And then it just went on and on. People were surprised that after such carnage, we kept going. The South and the North just kept going. Uh, and, and so Lincoln was the right man. He had the faith. He had the darkness. He had that side that, that, that understood death and eternity that helped him to conceptualize this higher theology for the nation. Well, I think it's in the second inaugural. This is from the second inaugural. I agree with you about that dark side. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. So there was a sense, and I think this is a segue to the present, there was a sense in Lincoln. He did articulate this grand purpose for the North as it's saving the Union and redeeming the promise of the Declaration of Independence. But he also had a real acute sense that the affairs of men are dark and mysterious and that they are ultimately in the hands of God. But now we take this high and mighty purpose into the 21st century with our woke revolutionaries that echo a lot of this, but without any <laughs> sense of the dark mystery of human affairs, and certainly not with an awareness that God's plans are not, God's ways are not our ways, and we cannot know the mind of God. So there's a kind of humility in Lincoln that's paired with this very high mythic language. Sadly, we've lost the humility, it seems. Uh, Lincoln understood fallen human character, fallen human being. It did give him the humility always to say, yes, God's purposes, let's not presume to, to claim too closely our alignment with his. And it gave him, I think, a tragic sense of life, the tragic sense of things. The tragic sense of life is foreign to the woke, the millennial, the younger woke sensibility. Because the tragic sense of life, the fallenness of things, tells you that uh, you believe, you young progressive, there's always so much more to do. And what the tragic sense of life says is, oh yes, but let's also realize the poor will always be with us. Uh, there's more to do, but we will never, ever get it all done. And if you believe, if you can't be satisfied until it's all done, well, you're going to be a very unhappy person, first of all. You're going to make the other people around you very unhappy. And you're going to end up committing cruelties to others. You're, you're going to you're going to sign on to that petition with 2,000 other of your fellows to get one person fired uh, over a statement in, in a lecture. You know, it's uh, the in the inaugural, second inaugural, he sa says quite 
harsh things about slavery. And, and Lincoln was certainly not one to say that we should be, you know, be kind of absurd prosecutor of this incredible war, that we should be quietistic or indifferent. But he follows up those sharp words with, he catches himself and he quotes Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, but let us judge not that we be not judged. So there was, a, as they say, a kind of, I always thought the second inaugural um, was a was kind of brilliant work of public theology. On the one hand, clearly stating, as you say in your piece, this kind of high C, you know, it's you're hitting a high note, mythic sense of the nation combined with um, a profound sense that um, our destiny is not in our own hands. Yeah. You know, Rusty, that after the war, after Lincoln's assassination, the South adjusted its conception of Lincoln as well. For instance, uh, one of the uh, prominent white supremacists in American history was a novelist named Thomas Dixon. Dixon wrote the trilogy of novels, uh, The Leopard Spots, The Klansman was another one, uh, that became the basis for D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, hmm. which is a celebration of the creation of the Ku Klux Klan after the war. Now, the opening of, I think it's The Leopard Spots, the opening of that is news of the assassination of Lincoln spreading across the South and Dixon presents the loss of Lincoln as a disaster for the South because the loss of Lincoln licensed the vindictive, vengeful Northern politicians who are going to impose a rigid and oppressive reconstruction upon the South. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the interpretation that Dixon gives it. The idea was that Lincoln would have brought resolution. He would have brought the North and South together in a way that would avoided, have avoided the frictions that Andrew Johnson, his administration, and some of the angry Northern senators. And there was a lot of anger at, at the South. After but don't the you think that's, a good, that's to your point of had he lived... He would have been embroiled in all of that, all of that vindictiveness and oh, yeah. resentment and all the Southern resistance. And, and he would have come out at the end of his second term. We would, we would not regard him as quite such a spotless, heroic president. <laughs> he would have a much more mixed reputation, it seems to me. But he is our, he is our, our, um, he is our mythic president, isn't he? Much more so than, I mean, George Washington is a mythic president, but the two of them, it's not, it's not wrong that they would be united in national celebration in a way that Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt, all very important and influential figures in their own way, are not. Yeah. Well, they, well, did, it, they were nation-defining rhetoric, uh, figures, not... Uh, um, Washington through his actions, more so Lincoln through his words. We were we were very lucky that in the two wars 
that were most crucial to the existence of the United States, we were led by men of extraordinary character and virtue and intelligence. Leaders like few, few places, few countries have ever had. Washington and Lincoln during the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. My goodness, you couldn't do much better than, 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 than those two. FDR, uh, you know, he's probably the third most uh, renowned figure as a wartime president. Not Woodrow Wilson, certainly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yes, we, we understand that, I mean, this is our mixed outlook on, my mixed outlook on, on Lincoln. He has such high conceptions and that makes us feel good. But then when we've got to be very practical Americans, especially in the legislative process, oh, we can't, we can't be this high. And this is why I like to counter that uh, elevated conception of, of America through figures like Lincoln and Washington with a little bit of Davy Crockett. <laughs> and you know a, a, a little bit of the 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 rough uh, you know the, the Mark, Mark Twain um yeah Mark Twain thing. yep uh let, let, let's get some of those figures into the American tradition I mean Davy Crockett remember you know the famous backwoodsman the settler Tennessee Indian fighter amazing hunter uh no one better with a with a with a rifle than Davy Crockett he also went to Congress he served two terms in Congress. But left in disgust, as I recall. <laughs> he left in disgust. He went back to Tennessee and he gave a famous <laughs> remark where he said, I, in, in so many words, he said, I, I wanted to represent the people in Tennessee as best I can. And if they didn't want me to anymore, well, here's what he said. They can go to hell and I'm going to Texas. <laughs> and a month later, he was at the Alamo. Uh, and, and so his story, I mean, so that, that's a little bit of the, 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 the grimier side of America, which, which Europeans now that Europeans understand very well. Uh, you know, they, they, well, they love America, noir film, don't uh, they? The, the noir films, the, the, the right, right. There's uh, a very so, American. But, you know, Lincoln that. had his grimier side, uh, old, you know, uh, Abe out there in the woods, you know, the rail splitter, uh, he, he could out wrestle anyone in town, anyone in the county. Uh, and, and let's not forget that side of, of, of Lincoln, who could tell a, a bawdy joke uh, <laughs> now and then. And when, when he was elected, you remember the, the, inaugural, the inaugural party at the White House? All these Western uh, uh, shady <laughs> and, uh, uh, characters came into the White House and trashed the place. They had a big party. Uh, Lincoln just kind of, okay, you know, that's this is, <laughs> My people. is the people's house. It's not mine. So there we are. <laughs> Let's end uh, with our memories of the first time we went to Lincoln Memorial. I, I'm almost certain I went with my grandfather as a child because I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, so it was close by. And I, you begin your piece evoking the atmosphere of piety, and I guarantee you that was the spirit with which my grandfather showed us the, the memorial when I was probably four, five, six years old. What's right. your first memory? 
and, and reading the words on the two walls. You know, the second inaugural is on the, the north wall. The Gettysburg Address is on the south So what's your wall. first mem- memory of going to I, I Well, I, I, we were in Washington, D.C. When, when we were six or seven years old. And my father used to take us down to the mall. And John and I, would we, we would run around. and, and uh, But it, it, living in Washington, D.C., it's all part of, it was very much a part of your, your elementary schooling. The Lincoln Memorial, the mall, these, these were like like uh, 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 civic representations that gave stature, memorialization, and greatness to the American past. And remember, the Lincoln Memorial has a special meaning in what is really now the central episode in American history for most people. That's the Civil Rights Movement. The Civil Rights Movement, some people date it from when Harry Truman, after the war, went to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and met with the NAACP leadership. And it was around that time that Truman integrated the armed forces. And he had a very progressive race relations record. And then we have 15, 16 years later, we've got the I Have a Dream speech. And it's very important that Lincoln is right behind Martin Mm -hmm. Luther King when he delivers that speech. And and so that puts Lincoln in that big giant chair. He's the president. Rusty, he presides over the social progress of the nation. He he is the the reigning deity, the, the figure who oversees our progress, Separates the sheep from the goats from his chair of judgment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rusty, we all, when we look at him up in that chair, we are all humbled and we want to obey. We want to do the right thing. You know, the, the, is it Daniel French who did the sculpture of of Uh, Lincoln in the chair? Yeah, uh, David Chester French. Or Daniel Chester French. Daniel Chester French, yes. Uh, That was, he did a very good job. Lincoln, Lincoln is, he's like the lawgiver. He's the moral, he's the moral character, the moral conscience of our better angels, right? He, that's his call to us. And it, it, uh, I'm not sure if it's going to well, you, you have a mixed mind, which is that it's a noble call, but beware trying to live always at the fevered pitch of being the noble nation. It's gotten us into a lot of trouble, I would submit. We, um, we need to counter, we need every once in a while to counter Lincoln with a few other American stories, uh, such as, you know, Jack Kerouac on the road. A little grimy, but it's across, it's a, the meaning of America is in a story like that. And I, I think uh, the one as sort of a countercultural uh, leash on getting too carried away with our propositional, ideal, pure conception of what America, what America is or should be, even. Well, thanks, Mark, and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon on another podcast. Take care. Thank you.